Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of No Such Thing as a Fish. I have three things to share with you very, very quickly before we start this week's show, and I will give them to you in reverse order of how much you embrace capitalism. So first of all, if you go to nosuchthingsafish.com, you will find that we have merch. We have a whole new range of merchandise. There is a tour book, which was originally only available on tour. It's got loads of stuff about the history of fish made lovingly by Alex Bell. There are pretty much the nerdiest t-shirts you've ever seen, and there are pin badges. They can be bought separately. They can be bought in a big old bundle, and they are the perfect Christmas present for the fish listener in your life, or maybe just a Christmas present to yourself. Second up, well, just a quick reminder about Club Fish. That is the secret members area of Fish where you can get ad-free episodes. You can get loads of bonus content such as compilations and quizzes and the mailbag. Uh, You can join our Discord. There's all sorts of stuff up there. And the way you get to that is, again, to go to nosuchthingasafish.com. Finally, if you go to nosuchthingasafish.com slash Ukraine, then you'll get to a very special thing. We have teamed up with some of our friends in Kiev and they have made a quiz which is based on facts from No Such Thing as a Fish. It's on an app called The Game. It's a really cool app. It's like a quiz based on this kind of Slavic style of quizzing. The questions are really, really fun and that is completely free. All that we ask is that at the end of it, you at least consider giving some money to U24, which is the main place for charitable donations in support of Ukraine to help rebuild the country. Okay, well, that's it. Uh, Three different things. Buy some merch. Join Club Fish, uh, do the quiz and help Ukraine if you can, if you have any spare money. And if you want to do none of those things, then worry not, because the podcast, which will always be free, is coming up right after I say those magic words. On with the podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Andrew Hunter-Murray, James Harkin, and Anna Tashinsky. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in a particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that the 1986 ocean search to recover debris from the Challenger disaster also turned up 25 kilograms of cocaine, the value of which was enough to cover the $13 million cost of the entire search operation. Wow, what a shame. It's, uh, <laughs> which bit? <laughs> well, no, the fact that they could have gotten that money and it would have paid for the whole thing, but obviously you can't just go and sell your cocaine. Which you? is weird, isn't it? You should yeah. be able to sell oh, your cocaine. yeah. There should be, what, like a government buyback program, yeah. but for cocaine. Because exactly. mm. in the end, they just burnt it, right? So yeah. you could argue that this whole thing cost about 26 million. Good point. Um, <laughs> yes. So Damn. what this was is obviously the very tragic Challenger disaster. NASA sent a spaceship up in space, uh, 73 seconds into its launch it explodes that was january 1986 
they then start the rescue mission to try and salvage any of the bits of the ship that they could find the bit where it exploded over was just over florida so the ocean patch that it landed in is a very garbagey patched bit of ocean so to find it was a very hard process because they were using sonar and when you use the sonar you're picking up on everything literally from garbage all the way through to shipwrecks and so on Mm. so along the way they found the things they trawled up included marine batteries trash cans paint cans there was half a torpedo a refrigerator it's like everything but the kitchen sink wasn't it well it was literally not because they found a kitchen sink as well. <laughs> is this was this just a clever way of getting someone to clear up the oceans without telling them they're clearing up the ocean it's like when you kind of put a pea on a bit of how do you trick children to eat healthy food you know you put a pea on a bit of chocolate or something yeah uh, you put a pea on a bit, a of, bit chocolate, of chocolate that's it yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't pee on a bit of chocolate that's a different no, thing they did find a lot of cocaine uh in that area not just the um challenger search rescue mission uh, they found five identical duffel bags all of which had cocaine in mm. uh over about a six month period so identical this was duffel bags. yeah so the nasa people they found the fifth one but there had been four previous duffel bags all full of cocaine that had been found in the area yeah. It's, um, quite, it's quite a good way to hide cocaine, I think, in a duffel bag. Because I don't but, think people yeah. look in a duffel bag. Do you think? You know, I've, like- never, I've never said duffel bag this many times in a short space of time. <laughs> but I think I think of duffel bags as being something quite in- innocuous. Something quite easy to take to school. You have a duffel bag. I, yeah, what? but I think if you watch like um, <laughs> certainly British gangster movies, like the Guy Ritchie kind of movies, you can imagine them opening up a duffel bag. It's and always yeah, in a duffel of- bag. I feel like that's yeah. your classic cocaine carrier. What's, so, what's a duffel? What, what is duffel? Duffel's Isn't it like a town a shul- in Belgium. Oh. Is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's a shoulder bag, yeah. Oh, a shoulder bag. I think I associate with crime, definitely. <laughs> but, what were you thinking of? I think I think of duffel as a bit as sort of a light blue cloth. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking as well. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. right. Well, yeah. But also, <laughs> I would argue that duffel bag doesn't get an exemption from when you walk into, say, a building and they have security checks not to be opened. I don't. They think normally it's... wave you through. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excuse me, sir. Is that a duffel bag? <laughs> what from the Belgian town? Yeah, come on through. Yeah, that's fine. Um, the these five identical duffel bags full of cocaine. Uh, four of them, they managed to get the cocaine and they managed to destroy it. Yeah. Um, can you guess what happened to the fifth amount of cocaine? So there's another duffel bag full of cocaine, oh. which they never destroyed. Went into a museum? <laughs> the cocaine museum, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very good glass cases on those exhibits. <laughs> the audio guide. Yes, you're going through the cocaine museum now. Yes, yeah. If you look on your left-hand side, there's a really good exhibit. <laughs> uh, no, it, it, it went missing. It was put into a sixth duffel bag and smuggled <laughs> out that way. Uh, no, it was found by a party boat just off the coast of Florida. <laughs> and they found this massive bag of cocaine and thought, they're not going to believe us if we take this back. So they emptied all of the cocaine back into the oh, sea. And yeah, it, okay. yeah. Very clever. We thought you were going to say, obviously. They took it yeah, all, yeah, 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 yeah 25 yeah. kilos. <laughs> That's a party. What, when, what happened to the duffel bags, do we know? Well, I don't know. <laughs> uh, often what would happen is they would sell them on, wouldn't they? The police or yeah. the Coast Guard would. If you fi- if they find stuff and it's not illegal, they, they have like auctions and stuff. So there might have been, if you'd have seen a lot of four Five. identical duffel bags. Do you think, and if you got your head right in one and really sniffed away at the lining, you could definitely get a hit, I'd imagine. Definitely. Do you think? Mm, it's goes. normally wrapped up, isn't it, cocaine? I, I don't, I'm not an expert on drugs. <laughs> I don't think you put it in the bag loose. <laughs> 
that's fair. That is point. fair. Um, can I just quickly ask about the duffel bags? Yeah. Do we know if it was part of a shipwreck or? We don't know where they came from. These duffel bags, presumably some kind of nefarious activity. Yeah. Uh, but we're not. No, they were. That's kind of the mystery is where they oh, came from. Right. What yeah. a great ad for duffel bags, though. That they're, they're so resilient. This podcast. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you can just find them floating in the ocean. They might have survived a plane crash or a sunken yeah. ship. Well, yeah. we don't know what kind of state the cocaine was in. It might have been unsnortable. It could have been drenched. You know when you eat some crab meat sometimes and there's a tiny little bit of crab shell in, do you reckon it's the same with snotting cocaine? You're like, oh, there's a bit of shell in this. Yeah, yeah, I think it is. Or a bit of of duffel bag. I was looking up pharmaceutical things found on shipwrecks. Great. And I think I found maybe the oldest example of this being found. So this was discovered in 1990, not from 1990. Uh, These archaeologists found an ancient Greek shipwreck and there were pills on board that they were able to retrieve. Can you imagine that? Wow. I know. Wow. They were in a um, duffel bag that had been... <laughs> obviously, they weren't. Um, but the, and the scientists were able to analyse them, and we know what people were taking as medicine because we literally oh, have wow. surviving medicine what from ancient Greece. So you have what they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, lots of different ingredients, which were all sort of faintly vegetable or herbal. So yeah. celery, carrot, radish, wild onion, oak cabbage and a few other oh, things yeah. okay. and they were kind of i think we've been able to tie them to recipes or or, or medical manuals from the time that said oh mm. this is good for lots of things and these are kind of cure-all pills basically lots of different ailments that's incredible that. wow it's basically a vitamin pill right yeah. pretty much have, awesome. have given them to um crabtree and evelyn what, Who? what, what Who? is Crabtree and Evelyn? Crabtree and Evelyn is that shop that sells <laughs> quite expensive herbal stuff, which oh. I'm sure is very useful for a lot of people. Sure. Um, <laughs> do you guys don't know Crabtree and Evelyn? I'm afraid no. it hasn't hit Bolton, I don't think. I mean, there are just shops. There's one a bit about 10 yards from our office. Is there? Yeah, literally 10 yards from the office. Oh, is that not Holland and Barrett? Holland and Barrett. That's what I'm thinking of, Holland and Barrett. <laughs> Crabtree and Evelyn. <laughs> If what? you know who Crabtree and Evelyn are, <laughs> then please write in. <laughs> I think maybe Crabtree and Evelyn is another version of Holland and Barrett. Like some knockoff black market <laughs> version so. of Holland and Barrett. I mm. don't know. I feel like it, it sounds like two elderly detectives from, <laughs> yeah, a, from a Richard Osman novel, doesn't it? <laughs> I really thought you guys looked like the idiots in that interview. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, we reek herbal cures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so w- lots of shipwrecks that exist at the moment um, are being stolen. There's a thriving market in shipwreck theft, which I had never heard of before reading about this. So it's mad. 40 Second World War ships that were sunk have already been partly or totally just removed from the ocean. And it's because they're incredibly valuable. Can you guess why? Yes. Okay, great. (laughs) (laughs) Let me tell you why. I read the article. So so they contain something which we need today, like nuclear stuff, like uranium. Oh, you're so close. They're made of something that we need today. So they're made of, of iPhones. <laughs> iPhones. <laughs> Very forward thinking. Um, no, they're made of steel, lots of them. But they're made of steel that was cast before the year 1945. Ah. When nuclear testing oh. started, they're made of something called low background steel. Yeah. And um, that's incredibly valuable. Scientists use it, don't they? Scientists yeah. need loads of it for medical mm. equipment, uh, Geiger counters, space sensors, and all steel that you make these days, because it uses atmospheric air in the production, is slightly radioactive. Uh, so this stuff is really valuable. Mm. And uh, also low radiation lead uh, is used. And a few years ago, they, they used a 2,000-year-old shipwreck uh, the Italian Institute of Nuclear Physics used it. They cut it up to make a neutrino detector. 
and there was a bit of a hoo-ha <laughs> about it at the time because you know it's sort of controversial and yeah, yeah. but it's worth 20 times as much as normal lead wow. low, low background yeah. lead wow. it's really and but there is one bit of good news which is that this you know this steel is all steel today is radioactive it's getting less radioactive because we're not doing as many nuclear tests anymore. Hmm. so the Well, at least there's no <laughs> danger of nuclear war in the next year <laughs> yeah, or so. Okay, yeah. At the moment, at the time of recording, <laughs> background radiation is decreasing. Oh, no. I've just thought, what? if you were a supervillain who just got a load of this iron, yeah. it's in your best interest to kind of start another nuclear war, isn't it? Because you want the value to yeah. increase yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a terrible that's a James Bond it's, it's a classic James Bond very convoluted way of making money <laughs> as opposed to trading I love it but it is I mean it's hard getting stuff off ships it's hard getting ships up like the salvage the technology of salvage is so cool mm. um, they do I was reading about when they salvaged the Costa Concordia remember that sunk mm. in the Med yeah, in 2012 yeah. And they have armbands, basically, to get them back up to the surface. So... <laughs> it's, it's too late for what? armbands. armbands? <laughs> kind of. Made of steel. Um, probably stolen from some other sunken ship. Uh, they're called sponsons. Uh, sponsons. And they are these projections that they attach to the side of the ship. So you've got the ship on the floor of the ocean. It's on its side. First of all, you'll fill one sponson with water and the other with air. And so that will tip the ship upright as the air one lifts in the water. Yeah. Um, but the water one is weighed oh, down. Yeah. Um, and then you'll get rid of the water that's in the heavier one. So they've both got air in them. And then that just floats it up to the surface like a pair of armbands. That's pretty, pretty cool. cool. It is quite cool. And I think they did that to um, Costa Concordia, I think. And wow. like USS. Why did they do it to Costa Concordia? Why didn't they just leave it? Yeah, good question. Like, like these things with the really yeah. expensive iron, I see why you would do that. Or if you had a galley with loads of gold coins, mm. yeah. it feels like Costa Concordia would just have, you know, like a pool table. And <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it was on its, wasn't it poking out of the water? Yeah, uh, was it? It wasn't quite fully. I think in. it wasn't fully submerged. Yeah. So I think it probably blocking other traffic. Uh, yeah, maybe, yeah. and also useful for scrappers, I guess. Yeah. But but and also and just I un- think in those, untidy. But in untidy. those cases yeah. where you had court cases and so on, I think it's part of the working out the insurance and all that sort of stuff isn't oh, it really? was it definitely did it definitely hit in the way it did let's look and see whether you you have to look into that kind of I stuff. i suppose that's what they were doing with challenger wasn't it a lot of it yeah right. it was like an investigation as much as exactly trying to salvage anything yeah. mentioning challenger again very oh, quickly yeah. big bird was meant to be on challenger oh, yeah it was a very last minute thing that um well not it wasn't super last minute it was quit <laughs> 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 stop pause <laughs> three Hail it two down. wait <laughs> Yeah. Three. Ah, 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 ah. Two. Ah, 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 ah. Yeah, no, um, the, the actor was asked to go in and be part of the mission. Gosh. I think his name was Carol Spinney. And he uh, um, yeah. and it was all going to go ahead. But then they realized that the Big Bird costume was way too big to get in there. Um, and there's a very sad account, actually, of them at Sesame Street watching the Challenger go up. And Carl Crikey. Spinney going, oh, I was meant to be on that. And then the explosion Jesus. and the sort of the realization. Wow. Yeah. Really, really horrible. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Something else that um, washes up that we've never mentioned uh, on this show is feet. Human and feet. Human feet. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was, just, I was just looking at weird stuff found in the ocean. Oh, yeah. And um, I found out why. So do you remember this mystery? It started oh, about... Do we know why? Um, we, we can speculate reliably. So they kept finding, like... Just was it like just left feet or something? No, it wasn't. I think it was. It was basically feet okay. overall. There was a while when a few left okay. ones were and they, found. They were shod feet, weren't they? Yeah, they were shod feet. <laughs> were shod, yes, yeah. shod mean. wearing a shoe. 
usually used to refer to horses, but in Andy's case, apparently to refer to the people. <laughs> and where, where was this? Was this globally? They were rocking no, up on shorelines? No, this was the old thing. It was specifically in Canada, um, off Vancouver Island, in a place called the Salish Sea. Mm. Uh, so it's just like near, near the border with the US. And from 2007, over the course of 12 years, 15 different feet wow. within shoes washed up. And the shoes were all sneakers except one shoe, which was a walking boot. Mm. That sounds irrelevant, but it's not. Oh. And everyone was... Well, there were lots of theories, obviously, about who had been assassinated and had their feet chopped off. So this woman, Gail Anderson, who studies things like this, how things decompose, sank a bunch of dead pigs into the Salish Sea to see how they decompose. Were they shot? They... Yeah. Um, they actually were not shod Unshod, that was yeah. something because you can't fit a sneaker on a pig I think uh, as the old saying goes <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, they've got trotters though which should have a different um, uh. I imagine float profile <laughs> yeah I think they do so in an ideal world she would have sunk a human body yeah yeah, but yeah. There are issues around that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would definitely give my consent for a, a weird experiment like that. I know. If there me was too. A, a use for a. I would say orally, you just have. Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. If the, any so, mad scientist listening. Whoever gets me first gets to use me for. Uh, is that legally possible? I'm sure. Yeah. Wow, okay, great. Um, <laughs> there should definitely be a thing you can check donate my body to weird science. You can donate your body to science, but I, I need it to be. Specifically, yeah. yeah specifically, so, no such thing as a fish worthy science. <laughs> Anyway, um, this, oh, yeah, trotters. basically the conclusion was that they get eaten by crustaceans pretty quickly, but in your ankles, you've got basically soft tissue like tendons, joints, ligaments, stuff like mm -hmm. that. So they can eat through all of that. And because there's a trend in this area over the last 20 years for trainers, which have air bubbles <gasps> like in Nike them. Nike Airs and stuff. Nike Airs. <laughs> they pop up to the surface no. and bob along to a beach. But the feet are remaining. The feet haven't been eaten. No, because well, I think they're probably skeleton feet inside I suppose, the yeah, it's point. like you kind of eat the ankle and then you, you kind of turn around and start eating the foot, but it's oh, already well, floating it's away kind of thing. Yeah. It's kind of amazing oh, that crabs and lobsters also find it hard to get to the, the difficult bits of humans. <laughs> <Yeah>. yes. <laughs> yes. They should have a special human oh, fork. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow. really oh, I'm not ordering the human. No, <laughs> I, I can't. No, I've, I've just got a new shirt. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that chimps will help to break you out of prison, but only if they like you. And oh, so is it a good idea to befriend some chimps? Before the bank job. Before yeah. the bank job. <laughs> go, go straight from the sanctuary to, yeah. I would say it depends if the prison you're aimed for is staffed by chimps. Uh, Which very few are. Very few, yeah. 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 So I don't know how many practical benefits this is going to have for you, <laughs> but this, I think I originally read this a while ago in a book called Mental Leaps by Keith Holyoke, which is really good. But it's about this specific chimp called Sarah on whom lots of experiments were done in the 80s. We might have mentioned her before. And they were done by David and Anna Premack. And they were trying to suss out basically the extent to which chimps have empathy and a theory of mind so they can understand that other beings are conscious beings just like them. Mm. And so they did this amazing experiment where they showed her videos of actors trapped in a cage. Mm. And then they showed her pictures, like various grainy black and white pictures of various objects. So it would be like a, a key, 
that could let her out of the cage, let the actor out of the cage, yeah. and then a book, and then a crowbar, and then a poo or whatever. And I think was... you've made a mistake in describing this that you've included crowbar, which also can be used to get you out of prison. <laughs> it should oh have God. been the key, yeah. and then a load of things that you can't use. And in fact, a, a, in fact, a, a kind of a book can help you on your journey out of prison through education. Yeah, right. Mm. That is a more long form way, isn't it? You're absolutely right. I've picked the one <laughs> other object that would have confused the hell out of poor Sarah. No, I got confused though. Yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry. Fling your not- poo at the guard. He's distracted. <laughs> You're over the wall. Hey, you you should be reading your book. <laughs> right. I'm just going to say they gave her a key. They showed her a picture of a key yeah. and then four, three other things that can't get you out of prison. Yeah. Okay. Um, and she'd know to pick the picture of the key. So that was like she knows that this actor wants to get out of prison and she's managed to match up this image, grainy image, and figure out that that's what the actor would want. Right. But um, and then there were lots of other stuff as well. So they'd show actors trying to reach a banana that's just out of reach beyond the cage, mm. or trying to reach up to a banana that was on the ceiling and couldn't mm. get to it. And they'd show her pictures of, of a ladder, a ladder, a box, uh, <laughs> <laughs> jetpack. <laughs> no, a ladder, and then three other things that you can't exactly, use. Exactly, right? a ladder, and then a pole to get the banana. Yeah. But go they, on. Do they then give her the choice to? help people yes okay so well then they did the experiment with um a two different people keith her favorite trainer and in the study it says bill brackets fictitious name because i guess didn't want to be identified someone who she didn't like Um, and she would choose the good versions for keith so she'd get him the banana by giving him the pole or let him out of prison but for bill she chose (laughs) bad outcomes for him so there'd be pictures of for instance bill like sprawled out having tripped over the boxes and on the floor mm. and she'd pick that one for him because wow. she wasn't a fan what's Bill How worried about what, what? why does he want no one to know his name what's I guess because well, chimps don't like if it. a chimp doesn't like him what's he done to the chimp yeah oh I see oh there's an implication <laughs> yeah there. exactly <laughs> I, think oh, so. I don't think we're what well, you think the chimp just doesn't like what his music taste I think <laughs> <laughs> Bill's doing some dark stuff <laughs> okay there's there no suggestion in the study that Bill did anything untoward we should actually, if you're going to say stuff like that, Dan, we should change his name again so that people don't <laughs> oh, know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mark. And actually, I might change my name just so that <laughs> they don't know it was me. So I'll be Gary. Wow. Um, anyway, it's just so incredible the mental leaps that yeah. they yeah. can make. Isn't... Understanding this is a person, it's a person I like. I want to help them. I can do it in this way. I'm going to say it. I think they're smart. I think chimpanzees are Chimps. pretty clever. Yeah. It depends what far. you compare them to. That's true. Yeah. If you compare them to Slavoj Zizek. They're not very smart. Well, if you compare them to me, <laughs> if you compare yeah. them to Gary over here, <laughs> um, oh, but they one thing they do is they they will. Um, this is kind of again their friendship to enemy ratio. They have enemy lists. Do they? Um, yeah. Wow. And the article I read Actually. said this is why chimpanzees are like Richard Nixon, which I think is a bit unfair. <laughs> so this is scientists from the, right. the Max Planck Institute. They observed wild chimpanzees for thousands of hours in a row, right? Yeah. And what do chimpanzees spend lots of their time doing? Uh, grooming each grooming, other. Grooming. Yeah. yeah. And they, 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 it's a big thing, and it's a huge part of their social life as well. And basically, they have a very, very sophisticated mental map of who has groomed them recently, who they've groomed. And it's effectively who owes them a pint, you know? Mm. It's that kind of yeah, social yeah. level. They will be able to return the favour for somebody who's groomed them uh, and they will freeze out other chimpanzees who haven't groomed them or who are selfish and never groom anyone else. And so, then do they break into their offices at the middle of the night and steal <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. documents? <laughs> <laughs> so, for example, if Dan groomed James on Monday, yeah. Yeah. then on Thursday... 
James might groom Dan back, and the ah, system okay. works just fine. As in, it doesn't need to be the same day yeah, for it to be. Yeah. Rece- you know, I've, that's I've what, like, slept three times, but I still remember it exactly. And mm. and and like Dan knows not to not to worry about it because he knows that you've got his back basically. But you know, if Dan grooms Anna on a Tuesday and there's nothing for the rest of the week and the week after that Dan will remember yeah, and yeah. is not, not to be trusted with this thing and huh. you know I just like he's a hairy man yeah it's a lot more work right got a lot on <laughs> all gym research is so um, interesting mm. and I was I was listening to actually a show that interviewed Jane Goodall recently mm. and it's so interesting listening to her obviously maybe the most famous chimp researcher ever but when she started researching she went to Tanzania she was the first person who saw chimps using tools I think using mm. sticks to catch insects she got a PhD at Cambridge based on that but she got there and she was vilified and all the other academics said you're doing this completely wrong because she wanted to look at chimps personality and emotion mm. And at the time, everyone else said, that's really unscientific, doesn't mm. make any sense. You're humanizing these chimps. They're just animals. Whereas she obviously was saying, I've lived with these chimps. They're yeah. really similar to us. The only way to understand them is by like trying to look at them through these lenses. Wow. So yeah, she was she was bitched about. So she would give them names yes. and the yes. scientists would like, you can't give them names. That yeah. is wild. Like, Well, she was, mm. she was part of um, a group of three women who were put together by Lewis Leakey, who was mm. a paleoanthropologist an amazing character in this world and he was the one who thought that they needed studying at different closer contact and so he wanted three women who he thought weren't necessarily even qualified for doing the job and he wanted and he wanted them to be single and he wanted to send them out there and so he found Jane Goodall he found Diane Fossey and then there was a third one unfortunately whose name I can't remember and they were known as the Trimates or Leaky's Angels mm-hmm. and they uh, would go out there Leaky's Angels yeah mm-hmm. why did they have to be single is that in case they <laughs> fell in love with a chimp he was I think he was a bit of a oh, eccentric character no he was very oh, right, much okay. married um, but he, he just had these eccentric ways he sent her a letter saying you've got to have your appendix taken out before you go out there she did it and then he wrote back saying oh, I was joking about that that doesn't need to <laughs> <laughs> oh my god that is a good yeah. prank he wanted to test who was had the commitment to go out there was the joke of it and then he said okay, God, so you he... actually did it no no it was a joke he was just a jokey thing but um, if he was testing the commitment it sounds like you know if she I hadn't he was... done it he might have been like you didn't pass the test my theory is he was back working on that to be like oh yeah, yeah no i was testing your commitment uh, yeah, yeah. Oh. Uh, jane goodall by the way i have a barbie of jane goodall yes, um, <laughs> yes. which is like my equivalent of dan buying ben elton stuff um, what does it come with uh, it comes with a little monkey, a little Brilliant. chimp, which is the David Greybeard chimp, which is the one who she first saw using okay. a stick as a tool. You know, she properly believes in Bigfoot. Does like, she? properly. And I saw her recently. How do you get this stuff out of these otherwise sane people? It's <laughs> bizarre. <laughs> She's, there's this American program, which is called something like Bigfoot Uncovered or something. It looks really kind of amateur. And yet Jane Goodall sat down for a major interview with them and told all her anecdotal evidence that she believes that locals believe that it and so mm. on and yeah she's been sure, there. did she not write a letter afterwards saying i was only joking about that <laughs> yeah um i would just get a scar i would just get an append- appendectomy scar if someone asked me to do that smart uh, in most places where you're asked to have it removed yeah um you probably do will have need to have had it removed yeah sort of an emergency people cover. most people aren't doing it for a joke are they? <laughs> yeah. no. no i wonder how funny that little novelty scar is going to be when you're out <laughs> okay. in think... an isolated area no doctors are there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um chimpanzees they have their own theme tunes i really like this really yeah uh, just like richard nixon did uh they have um <laughs> They, th- this is bizarre. They have the, these drum rhythms. Male chimpanzees, when they're traveling, 
they will bash really loudly. They grab a big old tree root and they bash it against the surface of a tree. And the specific male chimpanzees have their own specific tunes or rhythms that they they bash out. Mm. And it's to advertise th- their presence, basically. Uh, there's a primatologist called Catherine Hobater who, who uh, found this out. And it, basically they can decide whether they want to hang out with each other or not. Right. It's a bit social media-ish. They're saying, yeah. I'm here. If anyone wants to hang out, I'm here. Oh. Uh, and Sounds th- more sophisticated than social media, to be honest. Oh. Hey. But they also can, you know, be on incognito mode if they like. Right. And hide, hide, <laughs> <laughs> she's just not hitting the tree with the thing. Yeah, yeah. And, or and you could steal someone's identity, couldn't you? You know, get your own blue tick <gasps> now exactly. by imitating oh. their... Your own blue stick. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Uh, can I tell you guys about my favourite prison break yeah, of all on. time? Um, with this facts about breaking humans out of prison. Um, this is a prisoner in South Korea who broke broke themselves out. Uh, his name was Choi Gatbok, and this was in 2012. He was in jail for five days off the back of his arrest, and he escaped by squeezing his entire body through the food slot. That is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're in prison, you see this on prison dramas, right? Yeah. They come in with a tray with your food in. They yeah. open a little slot. They slide it under. It's about the size of a letterbox. Yeah, it's so letterbox, tidy. Yeah. So the slot was 5.9 inches tall, 17.5 inches wide. Come so, off it. So, and Choi Gatbok... <laughs> got through it is the story that's impossible it sounds impossible right is the middle part of his name gap it is yeah Yeah, he was known as the korean houdini and he he's a he's a yoga instructor (laughs) (laughs) and a borrower (laughs) it seems too tiny doesn't it 15 centimeters bottom to top that's um that's nothing that's that's a lot more than five and a half inches what you just did there (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm always, I'm always saying that. Um, but what are the what are the bits? It's, it's it's skull and hips, I guess, are the two challenge bits. Yeah. Shoulders are tough as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Once yeah, your yeah, head's like through, that. I think you might be okay you, as long as you can rotate your body in the right way. Mm, Have you seen those know. guys in Covent Garden just in that main square up there who put their entire body through a tennis racket I've hole? S- Captain Frodo is a performer who i've seen do that on stage at a show called i think it's called la clique okay and he does a, a 12 inch tennis racket i think i've mentioned it before and then a 10 inch racket and also it's a ten, you can move a tennis racket around whereas a food slot in a prison <laughs> yeah, in yeah. a cell wall yes, stays exactly. in place you can like, it's, yeah. that's incredible does he remove the strings he does uh, there's a guy called Henry Box Brown. Uh, this was an enslaved American who got himself out of um, his slavery by asking someone to construct a wooden box and posting himself from Virginia to Pennsylvania. Amazing. Uh, he posted- Again, so he's one of those middle names where that's been added afterwards, right? <laughs> it has, yeah. <laughs> he was just called Henry Brown got and it. after he did the box. In fact, it was a bit later. Um, he On the box, it said, um, handle with care and this side up. And the article I read about it said several times the box was placed upside down and handled without care. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it took him 27 hours and he got to Philadelphia and he posted himself to the Anti-Slavery Society in Philadelphia. Oh, uh, so he's free good. when he arrived. Awesome. Uh, and he then moved to Britain and he had another career. 
uh, which is related to this. Can you guess what it was? Postman. Postman. No, not postman. <laughs> um, removals. Uh, he made labels which said this way up, and he enforced them rigorously. <laughs> Did he go on telly? He didn't the go box. on telly. It was a bit before that. It was the 1860s. Um, oh, the, oh, the 1860s. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you're so close. It's not to do with packaging. Showbiz. Oh, so um, was he an escape artist? He was an escape artist. Yeah, he became a guy who would escape from boxes. That's great. Tell his story and then do the escape. Cool. Wow. That's so cool. There's a. um, Have you guys heard of Michel Vajour? Who's um, he was someone who was in prison for bank robbery in Paris, and this was in 1986, and he got his wife to spend months and months learning to fly a helicopter so that she could rescue him. Mm. Um, so I say he got her. Maybe she volunteered. I don't know how the how the letters went. James, your wife flies a helicopter. Yeah, she what, is. What are you planning? Well, why do you think I made friends with that chimp? <laughs> <laughs> You're going to steal some steel, aren't you? You're going to steal some steel. I'm going to go into the uh, chimp prison and my wife's going to fly me out. She's going to lower it. a duffel bag from the helicopter. <laughs> I can't believe my entire scheme has been explained on this podcast. That might be like the most callbacks to different bits of the show anyone's ever done. That was lovely. Um, Anyway, his wife Nadine spent months learning to fly a helicopter, did fly a helicopter and picked him up from the roof of the prison. And the way he got onto the roof, which was the only thing that he needed to do, was by tricking the guards by painting some nectarines and making them look like grenades, which yeah. I don't know how you do. You've got to paint shadows oh, on them. Oh, green and... Yeah, yeah. Green, I think, yeah, if you're That's at a distance... That's how far away you are, are yeah. I thought you, I thought you meant he'd painted nectarines onto the roof of the prison and said, oh, can I go pick those nectarines? <laughs> <laughs> okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is... James. Okay, my fact this week is that in Tudor times, the guy in the crow's nest of a warship had to be really good at darts. Right. Okay, so mm. is the deck of the ship painted like a dartboard? Oh, yeah. And, and uh, why is he throwing darts down at the people, his colleagues? Yeah, good point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it if you see another massive ship and you think there's no way we can win this, why not challenge them to a game of darts instead? <laughs> yeah. They have to accept, don't they, under exactly. naval law? Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, no, it's not that. Uh, this <laughs> is because there are things called fire arrows. Um, and they were also known as darts of wildfire uh, and they were kept by the guy in the crow's nest and you would launch them at the other ship and hopefully set fire to it when you're in battle they were Wait, like so bigger these aren't darts that would be permitted in your local pub they're not they were a bit bigger than that they were right. more, more spear sized than dart sized but they were called darts of wildfire uh, and I read this in, I reckon this is the book with the least encouraging title that I got the most facts from ever. Uh-huh. Uh, it's called Darts in England, 1900 to 1939 oh, wow. <laughs> uh, by Patrick Chaplin. But it's full oh, of amazing wow. facts. And well, I read it in that. Well, Chaplin's also, str- straying way outside its brief. As in 1900 to 1939, these were not used in the First World War. No, they? no, they were. <laughs> he, did, he did give a little bit of exposition <laughs> yeah, before he got to 1900. Cool. Um, so, yeah, a bit unfair for for me to call them darts possibly although they did call them darts also a bit unfair for me to call them crow's nests because there was no crow's nests at the time either um the word the term crow's nest didn't exist in the 16th century um so they would have been called mast tops 
And was it um, just a platform you put at the top of the mast? Uh, actually, it was a little kind of barrel thing, yeah. um, but they just didn't call it that. And so um, they use these on the Mary Rose, for instance. And if you go to the Mary Rose Museum, uh, they say that their crow's nest there shouldn't technically be called that. It should be called a mast top. That's interesting. Yeah. I, mean, I assumed it was a really old term. I assumed it comes exactly from that period yeah. of you know, the golden age of sail. You'd have thought so, but no. But there's, and I didn't even write his name down because I thought it was such a pointless or meaningless thing to invent because <coughs> there's always credited the guy who invented the crow's nest and it is in the 19th century. And you think, well, crow's nest existed. What did he do? He gave them a name, didn't he? Excuse me, Anna. Are you referring to William Scalzi <laughs> Senior? <laughs> I certainly am. Right. Um, Give him his rightful name. <laughs> He's not. Um, alive to get pissed off let's talk so. about william scosby yeah. senior God. so he was a whaler and an arctic mm-hmm. explorer and um he, yeah he, the, he's credited with developing the crow's nest or creating the thing which was first properly called a crow's nest and mm-hmm. if you're up there you were a barrel man that was the thing and um he had a great family so he had a son william scosby jr who was also an explorer and um scosby jr um, was one of the first people to scientifically record what snowflakes look like. Cool. You know, big arc- Yeah. Um, he once wow. caught a polar bear and allegedly brought it to Whitby. I'm not completely <laughs> sure that's true. Um, okay. the They're book- from Whitby, weren't they? The Scars. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, the book Northern Lights by Philip Pullman. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. There is a Texan explorer in that book called Lee Scoresby who is named after and inspired by right? William Scoresby. Wow. That's really cool. So the name lives on. Okay. Uh, William That's Scoresby's great. wife was called Lady Mary. Nice. Uh, and Lady was her first name. Mary was <laughs> <laughs> her surname. And because she was born on Lady Day, so they called her Lady Mary. Oh, yeah. and because they wanted to trick society into embracing them. In- oh, maybe. I yeah. don't know. She had married Lord Timothy Dexter. Yes. Yeah. So it could have been Lord and Lady. <laughs> what was Lady Day and does it still exist? Uh, Lady Day is a religious day yeah. for the Virgin Mary. Oh, okay. Um, and also they did a sculpture of a crow's nest in Whitby in 1994. Uh, But local historian Norman Nichols said it looked more like a margarine tub than a crow's nest. (laughs) And even the bird on top is of an unknown species. Also, there are two men in the tub, whereas a crow's nest would only ever have one person and one of the people's looking through binoculars and they weren't used on ships until the 20th century. That's a hell of a fact check on a statue. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And the council said that it wasn't supposed to be accurate. It was just... (laughs) (laughs) That's a cop-out as well. It was the winning entry in a competition and they just happened to put it in Whitby because it was near the sea. Oh. Dan's excuse for most podcasts. It's not meant to be accurate. (laughs) So I guess the upgrades that were done to the crow's nest in the 1800s were they they had nooks or racks included, don't they, to accommodate your telescope, the very much 19th century um, binoculars, and um, (laughs) signal flags. So you could signal down to the people on the deck to say there's a shark coming or whatever. And a speaking trumpet. So you could shout oh. to your crew and you'd have a trumpet up there and then often on deck the captain would have another trumpet to shout back. <laughs> right. That's um, cool. That's great. That's and quite actually whimsical. apparently had big painted arrows um, too and I think painted so that they showed up so you could see them on deck and this was for pointing at a whale if you're on a whaling expedition. What do you mean? Sorry, where were the arrows painted? I think that they were just painted a colour, a bright colour so you'd make where a would long way on the ship. In the crow's nest. Oh, so you, As, oh, you would hold so an arrow. you're Sorry. holding an arrow Got it. it's oh, not yeah, a picture yeah. of an cool. arrow like That's someone nice. who's trying to show you where there's a golf sail yeah, yeah. I, I, I just blanked those people out and but those yeah. guys, but no but those guys they all originally <laughs> had worked on ships <laughs> uh, because they were better at pointing to things yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. according yeah. to Penn State website 
at the State University, and I don't think this is true, but it was on there. It said that the crow's nest w- uh, used to actually contain a crow. <laughs> okay. And that navigators, because crows were used by, like, I know the Vikings used crows because if you let one go, it'll go to land. And so you can follow it to land. That was that was a thing. I don't think that bit's true. I think they were named because crows, generally speaking, build their nests quite high up at the top of trees. Looks stuff. like a bird's oh, nest. They look massive, yeah, don't they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although there was a study in British Columbia that found 45% of crows' nests are built on the ground. So I've blown a few myths there. That's hu- so really all the chips crow's nest should have been just on the. Forty five percent of them. Should have been. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, and you wouldn't need the trumpet. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Titanic had a crow's nest, did it? And it yeah, was it was sense. tragically it wasn't properly functional on the night the ship hit the iceberg. Right. So oh. there were two lookouts, official lookouts on the Titanic. They were yeah. called Frederick Fleet and Reginald Lee. And this actually might be the whole cause of the Titanic sinking to a, to a degree. So the ship's second officer was a guy called David Blair, right? Mm-hmm. And he was only on board from Belfast, where it you know, uh, launched, to Southampton. Yeah. And then it was going Southampton to New York. Yeah. But he got off at Southampton. Okay. And when he got off the ship, he took with him a small key. Oh, yeah. And the key opened the cabinet in the crow's nest which contained the binoculars and the telescope mm. so no the lookouts decided had... shall we break open this lock no <laughs> <laughs> they just they were just relying on the naked eye yeah and really? they and frederick fleet survived the sinking and he went to he, you know there were hearings afterwards and at the hearings he said yeah it would have been very useful to, to have the binoculars or the telescope uh and we might have been able to get out of the way mm. and that key has survived though because Blair, mm. who had got off the ship, kept it as a really? souvenir, memento, whatever. Chimps now use it to break people out <laughs> of cages. Uh, yeah, and it was auctioned off in 2007. I think they got that wrong in Titanic. I've got a real vision in Titanic of the lookout looking through a telescope. So, oh. wow. James Cameron, take a look. Maybe go back and do an edit. <laughs> um, I've got a lot on darts. Well, let's yeah. talk about darts. Yeah. Yeah. Dart stuff. Um, this the guy that you got this um, fact from, James Patrick Chaplin, yeah. has a fantastic website where oh, he, he goes heavily into the world of darts. Uh, Learned so much from him. Um, one interesting thing that he pointed out is there's a conception that darts became a big game in this country when a man called Bigfoot uh, was <laughs> able. For God's sake! Well, no, but this is real. This yeah. is a real Bigfoot. But how do you find them? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go on, William. Bigfoot Anakin, uh, in 1908, courts in Leeds were saying that darts is gambling because it's simply just throwing and it's a gamble and where it's it lands. It's completely random where it lands. Completely w- yeah. random where it lands. And um, in order to prove that that wasn't the case, Bigfoot was brought into court and he was asked <laughs> to throw specific three double twenties, which he managed to do. And in doing so, showed it was a game of skill. Yeah. And that meant, ah, okay, this is a sport. Therefore, you are allowed to bet on it. This in the history of darting is often presented as it changed it for the whole country yeah. as a seminal moment the truth is it was more localized and it helped in a very specific case in leeds in leeds exactly um <laughs> yeah so the this story we're not sure if it's true or not so uh, william anakin's grandson says it is true yeah uh, but all the magistrate records from leeds from 1908 are missing yeah um suspicious. <laughs> suspicious they've been spotted halfway up the himalayas actually but uh, it's never been confirmed whether they were yeah. really there's deep. a blurry document but you can't quite make out the words on it but the story is that uh, they um judge told him what to hit and perhaps it was 20s and stuff like that but then everyone else in the court would shout out a number 
and then he'd have to hit that. So someone goes seven, and then he'd hit the seven, and someone <laughs> wow. shout out nine, and he hit the nine. That's a great story. I like that. Yeah. There is there was a study done about what you should aim for in darts. Ah. It was done. It was published in the Royal Statistical Society Journal, and. Basically, it was saying you should only aim for treble 20 if you're a very skilled player. Uh, because if you are not a skilled player and you aim for treble 20, you'll average 10.2 points per throw. And if you throw totally randomly, you'll average 12.8 points per throw. So you'll actually do oh. less well than average. Because on the either side of triple 20, there's a five and a one. So you risk getting low scores. But that's a very unambitious way of thinking about darts. It <laughs> implies that no one can ever improve from the low base. And just like, if, unless you're a natural savant. You just, it just play for your you 12. can't improve. It just says, why don't you try and improve on the on the baby slope uh, <laughs> down here with you know the, the nineteen, which has less dangerous numbers around yeah, yeah. it. I was reading about what a sort of man's sport it was. You know, women weren't allowed to compete with the men uh, in their competitions, as well as there wasn't really a women's body for it uh, for a very long time, and there was a big moment for women's darts, and it's all down to the queen mother because the queen mother went and played with the king at the time uh, a game of darts and she beat him and mm. she was standing a foot closer uh, to the do- to the dartboard but she beat him 21 by 19 and afterwards there were headlines around the country Sorry, saying she beat him 21 by 19 they, no. they both threw three darts I see yes. and this was in the 30s we should yeah, say yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. in the 1930s and, um, and so the headlines everywhere women flocked to follow the queen's lead at darts and there was this moment where it looked quite cool because it meant that uh, women and men were playing together different mm. classes were playing together it sort of transcended everything and then bloody World War 2 broke out and, <laughs> and that sort of what? put a stop to things for a while people stopped playing darts and then they forgot about this these halcyon oh. days of when everyone came together to play darts because yeah. yeah. i think darts playing tripled after the queen mother played it for a while Did it? but then but you say you know w- women didn't used to be able to compete against men but i mean in almost no sports can women compete against men and actually darts is one of the very few yeah. um where Fallon they Sherrick can now is the most yeah. famous female darts player has she just won a, a- Tournament. A couple of years ago, she yeah. played in the World Championships and she beat a couple of men. And she played in the men's, specifically the men's. So she entered as a woman into right. the men's championship. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she, she says she gets a lot of shit from the female league because they feel like she's not taking their league seriously. I read yeah. an interview with her recently yeah. where she said... You can understand that. I think that's a complicated yeah. issue. Lisa Ashton as well from Bolton, I should mention her, who's the best female darts player um one interesting thing that could happen to the darts player and this is something that has been observed in the older generations of professional dart oh, players yeah. it's called dartitis yeah it's <laughs> really bad dartitis <laughs> is a motor neurone um oh. disease without any explanation some people have described it as sort of the yips you just it's you the become, yips for darts yeah isn't it? exactly and you basically start throwing but you your brain won't let you let go of the dart and you, oh you just have goodness. this kind of mental barrier that stops you from being able to throw a dart. It's terrifying, and uh, darts players are terrified of it, I think. The, the yips is the same as choking, right? Or, or No, the yips is actually the same. So if you're in golf, at least, this is the yips. Yeah. So if you need to hit a very short putt so the ball into the hole, your brain just won't let you push the club through oh. the ball. You'll kind of get close to it, and you'll just kind of freeze up. And yeah, it's Wait, awful. and how common is Does this happen to people sporadically, well, or is it if you've got it, you've got it? No, you can, you can So Eric Bristow, who mm-hmm. is seen i mean james you know darts more but yeah. he's basically seen as one of the greatest if not one the of greatest. the greatest yeah, yeah so one of the six-time yeah. world champion uh for darts and he got it on his fifth 
world championship right. so he had mm. he had dartitis and he managed to get himself out of it and he went back to number one in the world but wow. he says he had it he definitely had really? it yeah it's amazing sid waddell who was a very famous brilliant darts commentator famously said of eric bristow when alexander the great was 33 he cried salt tears because there were no more worlds to conquer Eric Bristow is only 27. <laughs> oh, what a legend. So great. He was. Okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is Andy. My fact is, there is a 50% chance that you have a caterpillar in your mouth. Which was oh. you talking to? <laughs> so it's, it's everyone. You're not addressing. I thought no. you were looking at me, and I thought maybe. Uh, no, no, no. It's not. It's not a. It was a judge, personal judgment. Absolutely not. It's right. not a personal hygiene thing, as far as I'm aware. Is that why sometimes the butterfly will eventually fly out of my mouth? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so these caterpillars, um, uh, they are bacterial caterpillars. So they are multicellular bacteria, which are all in a line. So they look like caterpillars. That's why they've got their name. Okay. Yeah. And this a is from. Trick. A, it's a trick. It's a brilliant uh, website called Small Things Considered and Jennifer Fraser uh, wrote an article about it and I, I uh, read it recently. It was featured on a, a website called The Browser, which I read, which I love. Uh, and these are these bacterial caterpillars, they cling onto the inside of your cheek and they eat you. You are the food and they just live inside your mouth and about mm. half of people have them and they're a family of microbes which are so hard to pronounce and I'm going to have a go at it. It's Niceraceae to see you nicer in ACI. <laughs> nice. <laughs> there we go. Um, yeah, and they, they've, they've evolved to live in our oral cavity uh, or our mouth, as the uh, <laughs> common saying has it. Uh, the most famous member of the Niceriaceae family is Niceriaceae gonorrheae. Oh, not so nice. <laughs> uh, so gonorrhea is part of this family oh. of bacteria. But they're named after a guy called Albert Nicer. Uh, He was a German physician uh, and he was the one who the gonorrhea bacteria was named after. Um, (laughs) He did discover it, but yeah, it's not the greatest thing. He also co-discovered the causative agent of leprosy as well. Wow. Um, It's called, the other guy was Hansen, I think. It's called Hansen's disease now, but he was the other guy who found that. Two two really palatable and attractive things. I know. But was, was there ever a Mr. Gonorrhea? Or was oh that, was that no! Not part of the... Gonorrhea means something. Gonorrhea means sh- like shooting out, like diarrhea, right, doesn't it? And I right, can't right. remember what gonorrhea means, but okay. it, yeah, right. it means something else. Okay. Uh, but the other thing about Nicer, uh, again, not a very nicer thing. <laughs> um, he did some quite unethical clinical trials on syphilis, putting it into patients uh, in the 1890s. And because he did that, the universal rule regarding human experiments and the ethical rules that we have now on human experiments came in because of his experiments he did so we've got about according to a study i read 700 different species of bacteria in our mouth Mm. at any given time a caterpillar may be one Mm. of them and some of them stick to their own patch of mouth your mouth roof bacteria will be very different to your cheek bacteria for example and yeah and they just live on different continents within Mm. your within your face it's pretty amazing and also our mouth microbiome, our oral microbiome, is like our um, gut microbiome, right? There's lots of talk about the gut microbiome, how everyone has their unique mm. collection of bacteria, colony of bacteria, mm. and that, you know, helps you digest food and your immune system, etc. But similarly, in your mouth, you've got your unique oral microbiome, and it started building up basically from the moment you were born, and it doesn't change that much. Mm. So you'd think when so you weird. eat 
kind of food with certain bacteria in it or when you put your fingers in your mouth or you know you don't wash your hands for ages <laughs> yeah. you'd think that you're introducing new colonies but they're just fought out because basically at birth you've started forming this thing and in fact in the womb i found this really amazing if your mother had gum disease or was a smoker, you are more likely to be born with pathogens in your mouth that dispose you to it cavities is and really stuff. Interesting wow. is that they that found weird? that quite recently because they thought that the first bacteria inside a baby would have probably come uh, vaginally, like mm-hmm. as they came out. Right. Basically, they thought a baby would be quite sterile, but as they came out, they would pick up all of mm-hmm. the bacteria yeah. and stuff. But it turns out that the baby's already getting bacteria from the mother's mouth, and somehow it's going from the mother's wow. mouth down through placentally into the baby. Incredible. We're not quite sure how it happens but because we know that the same species from one place and the other we know that's how it's come God, through mad. and it's into amazing. the baby's mouth oh, yeah. it ends up because these are bacteria that belong in the mouth so yeah. they find their way find it cray cray it is yeah. incredible. That's incredible. Uh, the thing that you said dan about how different species live in different parts of your mouth they found that quite recently in a study where they kind of had these fluorescent things like little tag markers that they put on different types of bacteria mm. so if it was a gonorrhea bacteria, it would be blue. And if it was a, you know, Staphylococcus, it'd be red or whatever. And so they took them all out and then saw what they were. um, And they gave them different names because they saw patterns. So you would have the caterpillar in your mouth, but you might also have a hedgehog, a corn cob or a cauliflower. Mm. Uh, These are different (laughs) types of bacterial colonies. So all four of us here, the bacteria on our tongues are more similar to each other, aren't they? Than the bacteria on our own teeth. Because we make Mm. out so much. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly it. It's how we keep this vibe between us. Yeah. The repartee. But if you, Pretty show maker. <laughs> but if you if you kiss someone, you know, your tongues will be chatting to each other, but they are more similar than your own tongue will be with your gums. It's so romantic. Your teeth. Yeah. Uh, maybe our tongues could chat to each other. <laughs> Sounds quite French, doesn't it? Yeah. Um you know, eating sweets. Uh, uh yeah. Kids listening. Doesn't. And adults, that's allowed. Yeah, Ad- yeah. Adults, yeah. Um, Sour Patch Kids, Andy. Love them. But as an adult, you can eat whatever sweets you like. Whereas as a kid, your parents often say, don't, you'll get holes in your teeth. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't cause cavities. What? Are you sure? Yeah. Um, well, what? there's, there's a, uh, <laughs> I have to oh, couch wait, this. Wait, wait for the backtrack. <laughs> um, so basically, the way the cavities are formed are when bacteria living in our mouth digest things that we eat. And then when they digest them, they excrete acidity, uh, makes them very acidic. And it's the acidity which rots away at your teeth. And some bacteria do like carbohydrates, yeah. but they don't prefer a sweet to an apple or some grain and i don't think there's a connection between eating loads of <laughs> but, quality street or whatever but it is true mm. that children are likelier to snack on uh <laughs> sweets than some grain yeah as in yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure you were very popular in the playground Anna. and is there the pick and mix oh you know maybe some buckwheat would be nice <laughs> I was a very advanced child. (laughs) Yeah, look, that's a good point. But I think also the problem is that if you were to eat, like, let's say, peanuts or bread or something, that's more likely to get stuck in your teeth. Whereas the the sugar tends to just disappear away. Just dissolves, doesn't it? It goes on your throat. So it would be quite a good advertising campaign to say, you know, if people are trying to not get cavities in their teeth, bacteria are trying to have a poo in your mouth and don't let them, you know, only let them do it at mealtimes. Yeah, that's yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That would be a motivational right. Maybe a character. You'd have a cat like a bacterial character. Yeah. You know, yeah. goes into schools. 
you know, a giant bacteria yeah. does a poo on the floor. <laughs> Don't let me do this in your mouth, kids. And then it burns a hole in the floor. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 I think this could be a good spin-off business for us. I love it. <laughs> I had a, half my tooth fell out the other night in bed. Oh, and no. I thought it Stop was Stop chewing on the bedposts. <laughs> Just so you know, Dad, that's a sign the end is very near. I know. I know. There was a huge contrast between me, a 38-year-old man, and my son, five years old, and our reaction because I went, oh, my God, I'm crumbling. This is it. My son grabbed me went, Dad, you're so lucky. Put that under the pillow and you're going to make tons of money by the morning. <laughs> but yeah, it, it just disappeared. And I've been eating a lot of sweets because Halloween, we got a huge hoard off the back of the trick-or-treating that we did. I and think been... there's a correlation causation thing here. Yeah, must yeah. be right. So half your tooth fell out. Yeah, it just fell out. Yeah. So you've only got half a tooth now? Yeah, it's still Are the rest serious? of the house. Yeah, I'm not joking. I feel like you're overly concerned here, Andy. It's just I feel a... like Dan... I feel like Dan needs quite urgent attention. <laughs> I feel like you're underly concerned. <laughs> I, did, I have to say, because I've only got half a tooth at the back of my mouth because um, mm. of some dental work that I never got finished mm. um, because it was becoming too expensive. And I said to the dentist, <laughs> it's only the back half of my tooth that I have. For all, the roots are a little bit exposed. And I said, if hypothetically I didn't come back and pay for you to put the crown on top of this, would it be bad? And the dentist said to me, look, if you were an 85-year-old woman, I'd say it doesn't matter. But for a younger person, you probably want that tooth at some point in your life. So if you do feel like the end is nigh, it, it's probably not worth getting it done. Yeah. So that's something oh, to good. reassure so, you. So you're I mean, saying that... I should leave it? <laughs> you should leave it. I mean, Anna, that's like, I remember when I was younger, um, being in a cab and not having much money and saying, and just, you know, you say to the cabbie, can you let me off here? This is great. Where you're <laughs> yeah. a mile short of yeah. your destination. Yeah. It is... takes up the cash you've that's got. That's what I've done. I've yeah. got an infected wisdom tooth at the moment. Well, it's just, I've taken antibiotics. It's just about getting better. But I'm thinking the way that Andy's looking at all three of us at the moment, I think our makeout sessions might not be happening <laughs> <laughs> okay that's it that's all of our facts thank you so much for listening if you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said you can find us on our twitter accounts i'm on at gary i'm not <laughs> at shriverland uh, andy at Andrew Hunter M. James. At James Harkin. And Anna. You can email podcast.qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or our website, no such thing as a fish.com. Check out all of our previous episodes up there. Also check out Club Fish, our membership club. Join today and come and hang out with the fellow Thunderdorks. Come and make out with us there <laughs> on our Discord. <laughs> on our Discord, yeah. Check it all out. It's really fun. Um, otherwise, why not just come back here next week? We're going to be back with another episode. We'll see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.